Dr. Daniel Jacquet. He has a PhD in history from the University of Geneva, awarded in 2013. He has taught at the University of Geneva and at the University of Lausanne. He's been a visiting scholar at both the Sorbonne and the Max Planck Institute. Uh, he has an upcoming, actually just came out in July, an uh, edited volume called Late Medieval and Early Modern Fight Books. He is the co-editor of the, you're going to have to help me with this, Acta Periodica Dulatorum. Perfect. Okay. And he is going to be talking to us about lost embodied knowledge, experimenting with historical European martial arts out of books. Thank you, Thank very, you much. very much. Thank you very much, Ben, for the kind words of introduction, and thank you, Paul, for inviting me to present uh, my research. I would like to begin with a disclaimer. Disclaimer. Um, actually, it's not the standard academic outfit. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate to wear that in conferences. Why? Because then the people just will just remember me as the guy in armor. And all the scholarly work and the endeavors are forgotten. I'm just practitioners and a guy who plays in armor is shiny. <laughs> and, but there is some scholarly endeavor behind it. And uh, as you've watched before, uh, I can actually move in this. And the reason why I'm wearing it, it's because I was willing to investigate or to experience, and I mark my work, uh, mark my word, experience, how the body could actually move into such outfits. Because I need to under understand this my body needs to understand this if I want to get into the text that explains or put in writing the martial arts of the medieval time. Uh, reviving, reconstructing, replicating. Uh, word plays, word matters, actually. And uh, that's mainly what this talk is about. It's can you, can you actually reconstruct it? What does it mean? Uh, can you replicate it? Is this experimenting, experiencing, we're going to go through this. Before I begin, I would just, sorry if I'm sometimes using my French accent and you don't understand me, I've made my uh, PowerPoint quite extensive so that if I'm lost in translation, you can still follow what I'm trying to say. Here we go. So, I intend to uh, divide this talk into five parts. The first one would go through definitions issues. What is historical European martial arts? How it is perceived today as modern practice or as historical object? Or we'll see. Then uh, key concepts, theory versus practice, which sources for which methodological, methodolo methodological approach, uh, experiencing versus experimenting, about disciplinary approach to this problem. And then I would like to show you two case studies. One is about narrowing down abstract or lost technical lexis, and the other one is about trying to get close to a tacit knowledge, which is what, how does my body behave in such thing. So it's about concept in the beginning and two case studies uh, in the end. If we get through this, uh, or if we don't get it, we, if we don't get to this, you can read it, it both are published. So. Let's start with uh, definition. Very wide, right? Within this, you can fill in uh, the embodied practice of the Roman legionnaire, 
as well as the bayonet fencing before World War, World War I. Uh, it's large because it's intended for the community of practitioners. Um, two key things to remember here. Tradition interrupted or alienated. So someone along the course of history, it has been broken or dramatically changed. And the second one, since it is lost, it has to be reconstructed through historical records, sources, documents, whatever we go to. It's not very academic, is it? Ancient art, modern practices. So, reenactment, of course. The goal there is to experience a past event, a way of life. What re do reactors do? Usually, they go to medieval festival markets or reenactment events, which are what they call in their community off events, without public. You don't deal with this, you just therefore live your experience through this. But they claim to be connected with the past. They have a relation with the past, with the past, a connection with the past. Stage fencing. Performing choreographed fighting exchanges. This goes for cinema, theater, cultural events, whatever. This is also connected to the past because they want to transmit through their performance a message that is a vision of the past. And then you can put in martial arts combat sports, where people are neither reenactor, re neither stage fencers, and they try to approach this as a martial art. The boundaries between those categories are often blurred. It's very difficult, because if you try to put them in boxes, usually they hate this. Because they are, oh, no, but I don't feel, I don't perceive myself as belonging to one of these. My kung fu is better than your kung fu. <laughs> you know this. Problem is, um, all of them, all of these categories, sometimes they are also engaged with cultural mediation. They transmit a message from off the past or their vision to the past to the public. Sometimes in institutionalized venues. And there's something other, something else. They're also published in different ways. Uh, YouTube channels, video publication of a friend who has studied the way how parkour uh, practitioners promote themselves through video channels. This is very interesting. We could do the same with the HEMA community. Um, online blogs have published online material, but also different kind of written publication we can often categorize those publications either between the how-to manual, so the idea is to explain to the reader how you can actually, well, get into these martial techniques, and the other one is about the context. So that's two general categories. We can, of course, go deeper, but that's not really the purpose here. So if you want to try to understand the claim, to the, the connection to the past of the modern practices, you have to go through all of this material. Now, let's just play some videos. What we do is to create a persona, which you as he joins. My name is Greg Kribos Nuroli, and yes, he has known as Yamasa Pikmin Downs, which is Welsh, and try to spell. You create the clothing, the equipment for that person, and you become that person at the events. Uh, you take the name Akbar and Bala. Uh, that name actually derives from Andalusian Spain. So it's Moorish. Uh, my title, yes, yay, 
is cool current, but I'm also not in the SC. Once you get out of here, it's dry. So it's like a lifetime achievement. This is a very family-oriented um, society. Uh, everyone's welcome. I have four children, and all of them have been to their first event when they were weeks or months old. Uh, my oldest son is 11 now, and I'm starting to teach him how to fence. We don't chop each other. There's rust. <laughs> Every kingdom is ruled by a king and queen. They are chosen by combat. You call the wound as accurately as you can what it would have done to you if it had been a real sword. Yeah. <laughs> Your opponent has the option of being chivalrous and also taking the same. We had enough. Uh, just at the end of this step, uh, is that when someone is struck to death or believe he's struck to death, they say we don't use death. We say disentangle to continue. I'm fine with this. The problem is that statement of intention. They claim they are connected to the past. They revive their idealized past, a past, not the past. And as soon as they say that, it's fine. No problem with this. They enjoy themselves very much. Stage fencing. Actors on the stage also demonstrate swordplay through real-time fight choreography. Dog Vader. This is just perfect, I'll stop here. So, these are professional fight interpreters, paid by a respected uh, institution in the UK, the Royal Armouries in Leeds. And they are transmitting, performing, choreographed fight to explain to the audience how the people were fighting. And they are based on fight books. They use a 19th century, really bad editions and bad translation, and they're trying to mimic what they see on the pictures. And they select the, the fighting moves or fighting depictions themselves, and they create new sequence. And they say, we are doing historical European martial arts. And I'm claiming this is biased as it is. 
But it's fine. Again. Martial arts, combat sports. like her. So she's a very young uh, German longsword champion. Um, so this is the representative of the community of what is called Orlado Historical European Martial Arts. They have competitions, they have demonstrations. They are also involved into research because it is part of the definition of what they do. The problem is they don't define research as academic would do. I will skip the presentation of the Polish national team to go to the fighting. Look at that. Okay. This is... Uh, quite trendy now. Uh, since five years, they have an international federation they call Battle of Nations, and they uh, promote that they are reviving tournament boards, as they say. They have a corpus of sources. They collected this with the past, but this is really not the picture I get as an historian of how it was done. Actually, they got it all wrong because the idea of the armor is to actually, well. If you want to put someone down in armor, you have to go with thrusting motions into the weakness. Problem is that in their rule set, it's forbidden. So what do you do? Uh, well, you try your best as a martial artist to put the guy in, to knock him down. And they absolutely don't care about the, the accuracy of their equipment. They want this to fit for their martial practice. Again, it's perfect, perfectly fine. And the last one.
some serious martial skills there, but uh, not really what I get when I study five books. <coughs> Theory versus practice, which source for which methodological approach? Let me just go through several concepts. Ben Spatz wrote a wonderful book. If you haven't read it, you should. And uh, he says, I quote, technique differs from related concepts like performativity and habitus in that it emphasizes the epistemic dimensions of practice. Embodied technique then refers to transmissible and repeatable knowledge of relatively reliable possibilities afforded by human embodiments. I think he made something that really struck me is this distinction, distinction between technique and practice as treated separately allows me to really come down to the concept of studying a technique in its historical context and its relation to its modern reenactment. First key concept. Second, my good friend Eric Burkhardt, if you attended this talk yesterday, you would know all about this. But he relies on this uh, triangle of thought, object, and symbol. He leans on the concept of tacit and implicit knowledge by Polanyi. And he used this to point out that any claim on modern day practice being historically authentic is bullshit. Bullshit, end of quote. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, well, the idea is that if you remember historical European martial arts, interrupted tradition, lost or alienated, and working to reconstruct this as historical uh, document or record. So we only have this, this is lost, and this is lost to us. Or more difficult to actually get out of the source material. I would love to have a travel machine. I don't. Both of these concepts, they go deeply on what a big issue is, is this question of historicized corporality. Please read the quote from Fair. Okay, I don't want to play too much with heavy concepts uh, involving phenomenology, physiology, uh, philosophy in this. What I just want to say is, uh, is reconstruction of historical skills in a modern day practice can be considered as possible. Uh, no, it's not. But we can get close to this. I love this idea or this metaphor of, this is from a famous historian. History is like looking to an object you cannot see because it's blinded by a curtain. And the only way you can get an idea of what it is, is actually through looking through small holes in this curtain. And the small holes are the source material. And depending on which angle you look at it, you will have a completely different picture. So everybody uses the same written sources, nobody gets the same picture. That's the beauty of writing history. History writing is subjective. So that was for the theory. Now I can move on onto the source material. And what do we do with it? Or what do I do with it? We are lucky to approach what is of interest to me is armored fighting in the 15th century. And we happen to have literature, fictional literature, and non-fictional literature. We have technical books that we call fight books that were traces where martial artists were trying to put their system into the writing. 
This is very, this is very well, pretty rare. We don't have this for, let's say, the Viking period or the Roman period. And we have material culture, a lot. So I would argue that we have enough to actually try to get close to their embodied practices by studying their contexts of enactment, but also how to, how they were doing. Five books. We have a lot. So we have manuscripts, we have prints, about for what is of interest for me here, uh, early 14th century until the second third of the 16th century. As you can see, different using images and text, or both. Genre. So if you define a fight book by having someone describing how to fight, you will find that in different genres. So tournament books, uh, costume books, fight books, and war books, or gunner, gunner manual. All of them will address in some way how you will fight, or knowledge that is uh, close to the fighting. But fight books, I argue, are specific. These are not manuals to train soldiers. This is a specific genre appearing in the 17th century. This is not tournament books. It's not about chivalric display of martial skills. And this is certainly not how people were fighting. No, it's not. If we look by the history, historians uh, in the field of history of science and technology, circulation of knowledge, there is a well-known model. Here, uh, average into the Hale White model. Lean white <coughs> medieval technology. So the transmission of embodied knowledge or bodily knowledge practice is mainly done through orality, as you well know, and appears something special in Europe in the last, uh, the second half of the 15th century. It is manuscript tradition intended for petitioners, people that were actually writing down their skills for several purposes. And at some point, they argue that it changes into the printing material. So this is a model, and the fight book, they don't really match into that model because you have manuscript production throughout. The manuscript is a chosen medium for this. And the printing tradition is also not really intended for learned lay public as opposed to practitioners. Both are true for the, for the both media. It is complicated, I know, so I'll just picture into what's in there. So they, the authors, they try to uh, part their skills into different partitions. The first one is what they call the civil fencing. So you, you fight in civil clothing and barehanded with all range of weapons. Or armored fighting, this is different because you wear this. And this, this is exactly why, why am I interested. Why is this a partition? Obviously because of the armor. And, of course, horseback. Then if you put the horse in the equation, the game's rules change a bit. And I'll argue as well that there is a fourth partition, which is ritualized combat. It's not opposed, because before it's also for ritualized combat, the specific kind of combat that we can refer as to judicial combat. This is considered as a mechanical art, mirroring what they call the liberal arts. So, this comes from antiquity, but it's very interesting or, or important to outline that this is considered as an art for them. Now, sorry, it was really quick into this, uh, what is a fight book? John Clements. John Clements is a nice American figure. Um, 
He, has, he claims that he has rediscovered and opened the field. He's an independent scholar. And he writes that these are the purpose of these books. Jeffrey Forgang, uh, uh, also an American, but really a, 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 a scholar, writes that maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's just about possessing the art. These books were writing as objects to be owned, for the people to own the art and put them in the shelf. And I, I argue that uh, there is a difference. This highly heterogeneous corpus cannot be put in boxes. You should understand it in its cultural context. It's either to describe, to inscribe, or to codify. So there's uh, openness versus secrecy. They use uh, scholastic discursivity, various attempts on movement notation systems. Sometimes it's personal notes. Sometimes it's intended as didactic. Sometimes you cannot consider them as didactic. So don't, don't consider those as these are fighting manuals. It's not that. So what it is. Hmm. Let's just leave this open, and we will, it will get clearer uh, for the case studies. Now, the last thing I was willing to address is this question, experiencing versus experimenting. I could uh, take different examples as disciplinary approaches to this problem. Um, the gesture. If you look at the gesture, there is the problem of learning this gesture, performing it, the context of this application or its performance, and the materiality that is linked to it. So we can draw from several uh, uh, fields. This is not exhaustive. That is what I use. Um, you can also draw in connect cognitive science and movement and sports science in order to better understand the impact of something on your body. And uh, for materiality, you have a wide range of things. If you want to put material culture into your investigation, then you draw on what has been called since about now 30 years, experimental archaeology. I use this, I could have used another disciplinary approach. But what is interesting here is that they go in circle. You never know. You try to get close to what you want to, to touch, but you are never there. You are always in this cycle um, thing. Learning curves. Oh, before you read that. Problem is that this is quite popular. And I would say that what I do with the sword is definitely not to be called experimental archaeology. It is definitely not. And experimental archaeology, in the beginning, there is archaeological data, a fragment of a pot. If you're interested into the embodied knowledge about how to make this pot, then you can go through your methodology in your circle, and at the end, your result is compared with the actual data. What is the actual data for a gesture? There's none. Oh, well, you could argue that, yeah, uh, a trace in the bone, panopathology. But how are you sure that this bone was given to that particularly, or this fracture was related to that blow? So you can't. Read that, it's full of bile. So this comes from a festschrift to 
what is known as one of the key scholar into um, uh, the development of the field, research field of experimental archaeology. And it argues that uh, when outside of the context of scholarly publication or professionalized institution, sometimes the concept is misused. So I may sound like him when in the beginning of this talk I was um, putting several films to say this is not exactly what we do. This is a bit like willing to impose your view on others. And that's not exactly not what I want to do. But at some point, this point must be raised. And all in all, and all in one, it comes about statement of intention in the beginning. Let's go into something more practical. How do I, in my research work, how do I engage with this problem of reconstructing? Why do I do it? I would like to show two examples. The first one is about, well, these five books, whatever they are, and as heterogeneous they are, at some point they use an, a vocabulary that is very abstract to us. Let's just go to this example. You can read the translation behind it. When you come to the Zufechten, which is the closing, it's a distance of fighting, with the opponent stand with your right foot forward and strike him with the vexel, a changing strike, then wind into the right flugelhau, such that your hilt stand in front of your head. Of your head, the hilt is the cross part of this. So this is middle of the 16th century. The vexel and the zufechten are two technical terms that are explained by the author or explained in other similar treatises. The flugelhau is not explained. What is the goddamn flugelhau? So. <laughs> You don't know, it's not explained, and it's used a lot. <laughs> so you take your dictionary, what does mean flugel? Then you can find that sometimes it, may, it can say wing, and in certain German dialects, flegel would be flay. So, okay, try to reconstruct a technique according to its name. No way you can do that, okay? There's no way you can do that. Hopefully, you have other source material for this flugelhau. So the first uh, appearance of the term into the five books uh, appeared in the late 15th century, and the last one appears in the very late 16th century. And actually, the two middle ones in black, they have a description of these techniques. Funny thing is, they don't match. It's not the same description. Okay. Why did I choose the Flügelhau? Because out of the, concept, of the context of this non-fictional literature, technical literature, uh, putting down the martial arts, the term appears as well in narrative sources. Let me told you, tell you the short story of Meister Sachs, Hans Sachs. Hans Sachs lived in Augsburg in the middle of the 16th century, and he was a shoemaker. He also happened to be one of the most famous known carnival songwriters. He left about 3,000 uh, carnival songs. And he was also a fencing brother from the brotherhood of the St. Marcus. A fencing guilds that were awarded by the authorities to actually hold competition in urban context. So this guy was a shoemaker, a fencer, and a songwriter. In one, in one of his songs, he pictures a, uh, a dialogue between a fencing master and a new practitioner, a beginner. And the beginner asks to the fencing master, well, uh, can you explain me what, what is the first thing I learn, I have to learn? And I quote from the head, well, you should learn the high strike, the below strike, the strike in the middle, and the flugelhau. 
<laughs> so this is the most important, one of the most important uh, technical pieces you should learn. <laughs> we, you will see what the Flügelhau is. We will try to demonstrate our interpretation of it. Problem is that it is an interpretation. How do you come to an interpretation to more sound scientific data that others can use or replicate the tests you've done to come to this conclusion? So this is the idea. So it's a, an ongoing project. We didn't get finance for this one. Maybe we will. So you try to research uh, on source material. So you gather different sources and approaches, critically analyzed. Then you come with induced postulates, deduced hypotheses. You put this in writing. And you try to assess this with other source material. Okay, so this is a lot of work first. Then, when you come down to the technical skills, the actual movement, then you write, and you plan, and you write protocol. You describe exactly what you do. Then you experiment it. You have a test phase, and this test phase is recorded. So this is one test phase out of many, and then you evaluate this with a uh, built-in uh, evaluation grid, and with statistical tool, you can come to some conclusion. So this is from the PhD, when I tried to use this method for other movements than the Flügelhau, but for related uh, movement or concepts into the armored fighting. And this is mainly drawn by the field of experimental psychology, where actually you know that the conditional factors you have have an, uh, have an impact on the evaluation criteria. Let's see, uh, please, Eric and Sixth, could you come and... Uh, so I was referring to the, these two texts. So this is actually um, the print of Pound and this is the first piece of the long sword section. And it says, the flugel is taken from the high guard or high point the first strike from the roof to his left ear, the second strike under with a step to your left, the third strike after to the head. So we come to this interpretation after a long study. So what, what don't you know here? So we have uncertainty about the edge alignments. In the other source, he says that the first strike should be done with the false edge. Could you make me a, a strike with a false edge? That's it. So you turn your weapon to strike with the other one. It has subtleties. The second one is that you don't know, it's not explicitly written, what you do with your, the last move, the stepping. So when you put that on the table, and you put this variable, and you test them all, so three strikes, three moves, three uncertainties, you're out of 18 hypotheses, so nine variants with alignments, uh, makes, so, makes two. So in the others, in, in, well, if you go down to that formula, you have 18 hypotheses. Some are just stupid when you put them there, so you just put them out. Why stupid? My body knows it's stupid. I cannot strike, for example, yes I can, but I, it's not really good or it's not written in the manual that you should strike with a false stepping. You can do it, but actually, mm, so you can put it to the side. But you explain which hypothesis you put on the side and which you're not putting on the side. And the two we have kept, so you have seen the first one, can we see the second one? Yeah. 
The second one is done with a strike with the short edge. And it's actually sometimes faster. Thank you very much. <laughs> so now if you put that into the system, I uh, try to uh, put another layer to the problem because you can do this on the what I call the mechanical level, so you have no dynamic involved into your plate. Then you put some more protection and you go with more dynamic involvement with where you want to touch. And the last one is close to the simulation. So here with a unprepared set of motion of the technique. But you have all of the ways, but you have to document this. And out of this, you begin to see internally and externally different uh, evaluation with this. So you can play a bit. So you have uh, different hypotheses, here three. Then you have a lot of test phase, ideally made by different practitioners. And then you have an evaluation grid, and you come with some results. So here you can see uh, what are the criteria observed. So there are objective criteria observed by someone which is outside, he sees the place that has been done, and this is cumulative multiple choice, so the observer sees connection between performance and description of the source, in the source, with what he sees. There is connection between performance and martial principles, as defined by the source, this is upward uh, work, and the performance seems, well, is free and seems effective. And then you ask the performer, is the sequence free and effective? Is the, se the sequence is feasible but not fluid or uncomfortable to perform, and the sequence is almost not feasible. This is interesting because different practitioners would have different sensations about this. And someone who is trained to perform a specific art or his interpretation of his art will build up his muscles in his body, and maybe at some point of his practice, this would seem uncomfortable, and then one year, two years, three years later, it's perfectly. Uh, so these statistic things helps us to lower uh, biased criteria or conditional factors, as I call them. So this is one. What is the output of this? Well, in the end, we've seen that the hypothesis 2 prevails. But the hypothesis 1 is fine. What does it tell you? It works best for opposed uh, hypothesis. When the hypothesis is too slim, like one short and one uh, long edge, well, both are doable. But if I have to tell based on the criteria I have, if I have to write, for example, a technical gloss glossary, um, then I would have more data to actually rely on. And this would be published, and theoretically, this could be reproduced by others who want to confront with interpretation. And that's the major step, according to me. Second one. The funny one, that's why I'm wearing this. You know this, the first keynote um, on Tuesday also make this partition. So the first one is an exception, well, the, the routinized and everyday movement or, well, uh, practice. And the other one is a regular or exceptional practice of a single martial gesture, so spe specific training. This goes into your sensory motor knowledge. 
which is based by referential repertoire of kinesthetic memory and performance of martial gesture. You know this, right? Don't have to go into details here. So what am I asking as a question to this uh, material? From my main source, the fight books, I can see that there is a difference in doing or performing or describing the same gesture, whether in armor or not in armor. Question is, why? Well, there are differences if you wear the armor or if you don't wear the armor in the handling of the weapon, the distance, the type of technique, and also in the system. Implicitly, it is because you're wearing armor. You, you are less vulnerable, so we... Can you, can you strike me? Just don't go to the face. Don't go to the face. Huh? On the back, once again. You, I mean, this is made to absorb this, the resistance thing. Resistance of the armor is not the material itself, it's hardened steel. So we cannot really. I'm using this in seven years. Do you see any holes in it? No, no. It's hardened steel. It's really hard. If you take a mass for a campaign uh, nail to put down, you strike it, you, it won't damage it. <coughs> this is made to be black. So, uh, can I once again? <laughs> if you just put the point here. Yeah, that's why. And why is the myth of the shining armor? It's not because I want to appear shiny. If you polish the material, it will help and flex. And it's better for the squire because it's less available to polish. The rust doesn't go into this. How do I know this? Well, uh, I've been wearing this uh, a lot and experienced with it. Experiencing, not experimenting. This is tacit knowledge. The people that were reading or uh, uh, practicing those gestures, they knew that. Problem is the modern reader, he doesn't know it. So of course it is clear. What I want to do is to establish and quantify what is the modification of the sensory perception of my body in my armor and the modification on my kinematic capacities. How do I move? How did we do this? Uh, we measured the energy, energy cost, energy expenditure, the, the, the shift of the center of mass, and the maximum range of movement allowed in and out of armor. So these are the tests. So we walked and run on a treadmill at different speed. This was very exhausting because this is classical sports science for athletes. Uh, this is um, uh, written and known protocols. So you begin and you have to go through the, what they call the aerobic, um, uh, how do you say that? Um, mm -hmm. Sorry? Yeah. <laughs> so it means that you run for two minutes on one kilometer, two kilometers, three kilometers, four, up until you can, un, up until voluntary exhaustion, as they say. <laughs> So you do this without the armor, and then you put the armor and you do the same, and you compare the data. And we were jumping on force platform. <laughs> force platform, so it measured the impact. As you, as you put the input when jumping, it measures the input on the ground, which part of the feet and so on. This is for uh, uh, ski jumpers yeah. training.
So uh, just to make my point again, this is experimenting. And the thing, when you've seen me running on the popular race, it was experiencing. Two different things. Huh? We measured the shift of center of mass and the impact uh, of the armor on locomotion. This is also a standard protocol for gait analysis. So I've been put these uh, white bubbles onto the 24 uh, sets of cameras and uh, every joint of my, copper of my body was analyzed. Then we did a level of freedom and maximum range of movement, anatomical movement, static and gait analysis, and specific movement investigated out of the five books with the same method. So in and out of armor. I would like to pause here and I would like to use Six and Eric again. Why did I choose this one? This is the perfect example why it is important to know. It is written in those books by the same author, an armlock. Everybody, you are a martial artist, you know what an armlock is. Can you do an armlock in Eric? So you need three points of control here, here, to put pressure here. Now, if you do this with the armor, you only need two. So there is, for example, so this is the, this is the technique out of the books. It says that you pass on the thread of his, of his uh, blade, then you go on with your paddle striking in the face, you put your shift here, and then you will bang him down to knock him out of place. He can counter this by doing this, and it will, be, it will bring me out of balance. Now, if you do the same with Eric, he won't go out of balance with this. So you see, he is stable. Why is the difference? It's because this is actually connected. So I have range of movement here. I have a range of movement here. But this is connected. So when this is pushed here, this pushes here to here, and it will be bringing here. So this is because of the armor that you can perform this technique randomly on any armor. The results uh, out of the gate analysis, we found out that there is a difference of 2.48 degrees, meaning nothing. So there's nothing really different by walking in armor. However, you see that the data is minus 18 degrees. This was really quite interesting for me because I was looking at those data. I said, "Oh, but I see that I have more range of movement with this movement with armor than without armor." This is wrong. And uh, the scientist and the lab uh, expert, uh, Julia, she said, mm, this is correct. This is correct. So this was this range of movement here. So I have, I have greater range of movement with the armor than without because of the body. So that means that certain movement without you noticing are greater means also more powerful if you apply that to martial uh, context. So just by wearing this, we know that our body are our weapons, but when you wear this, god damn you. <laughs> <laughs> You're really effective. This is not the same. So we did um, gait analysis, natural movement, so the armor doesn't disturb me, to uh, classical lateral movement like sitting. 
I can sit, I can go up, I can go down, I can sit, and I can stand up. I mean, there is no problem with this. So nothing with what we call natural movements are, oh, interesting. So this is the form of my spire, not the armor. Can you put that in? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> but what we call functional movements, so maximal movements, we uh, investigated every movement in three directions. So that means um, flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, internal rotation, external rotation. In some of them, I'm very limited, like this one. Yeah? I have 60% of limitation with this one, this one as well. But I think, and out of the study, that these movements are useless in fighting. You don't want to do that. Why? <laughs> but you would want to actually do that. And the funny thing, if you take the shoulder mobility, this one is completely free. This one. But this one is limited. I think it is on purpose. I think it is on purpose. For example, this movement, the straight line here, is also quite limited. It's to prevent my arm, my arm to be broken by an, an arm lock. It is also on purpose. So this is now a proof of concept. I will need further research um, to try to make the point and compare different typologies of fighting. But this is one of the things that came out of this study. Um, energy expenditure. In our uh, study, we found that I had 66% average increase of energy expenditure in armor. The same test has been performed by another team in 2011. They found incredible uh, uh, number, like 110, 130% of energy increase. And I argue it's not because they did the test badly, it's because the armor they, were, they wore were a shitty armor. <laughs> not corresponding to the subject of the inquiry, not made to measure, and not re uh, replicating the mechanical behavior. This is how my suit was made. The only goal for this is not the visual aspect, it's replicating the original mechanical behavior, and not the visual aspect, like the other thing. So that means that for the context of fighting, that is, for example, a chivalric game, a martial display between two knights on foot, I would have the same limitation as my opponent did. And I would wear an helmet like this. This helmet is six kilos. Very heavy. But this is made for a specific kind of combat. That would ensure my neck not to be broken, right? If I would be free with my neck, Eric, could you come? <laughs> So imagine we are fighting, at some point we are getting close, and he has an helmet, and he can move his head. I will just take it here, and bring it here. He will go down. With this, he can try to grab He can push me, but he will not destroy my neck. This helmet is six kilos. Another helmet, which is free, like a salad, is two kilos. So depending on what, what you want to do, or what you want to, to do with the you will wear a different gear. So that, that might seem heavy, but it is actually not for the purpose it is intended for. And this would correspond with what is written and depicted on the fight books. 
So this armor is not made, this set of armor is not made to go to warfare, but it's made to actually do single combat and martial skills display and ritualize fighting. Uh, you can read those two case studies here if you want to know more. And I will come now to my conclusion, if I find my paperback. Okay, my Kung Fu is better than your Kung Fu. My scholarly method is better than yours. <laughs> Young scholars always have to point out weakness in previous work to stand out of them. It is normal process. I, I, I hate to do this. What I'm actually um, claiming is that if someone claims or uh, in his scholarly research to work with embodied research, he should really do two things. First, document what he does, explain it correctly. If he states that he wants to narrow down either the technical lost vocabulary or if he wants to attempt to reconstruct the tacit knowledge. What I did and the experience I get out of this is completely mine. But the argument I make in the paper is wider. So I try to define between the two. And that, that was the point I wanted to make. If we go back to the title, can you reconstruct uh, historical martial art, lost embodied practice? Well, you cannot claim it is historically accurate, but you can, can get close to it. Thank you very much for your attention. I said in the beginning that five books cannot be considered as military manual for training. However, a lot of others will distinguish between what they call Schimpf und Ernst, for, um, how do you say that, uh, Ludwig, or playful situation, and actual serious situation. The serious situation can mean self-defense in the street, can mean engagement into actual uh, fighting scene into a context, and you would then apply different techniques but actually not different techniques. Different ending and different psychology. There is one author, I will just quote this one. He's famous. Um, he's famous because he's, special, he's, a, he's a specialist of uh, a shorter weapon, which he calls the mess or the knife. And in this, for example, he says that a technique which is performed to counter an upcoming blows can be finished by striking his throat off. Finished. He said, if you don't want to hurt him, because the condition is not, well, you are into a play, in a sparring situation, what, training situation, whatever, you will hit him on the arm. And if it's in a competition, then you will hit him very hard on the belly so that he can hit him, and you will have this, so the audience will notice. So these martial arts traces we have are also connected with performative arts. And I would argue that the, most of the techniques that are written are made not to kill. <coughs> but the difference is very slight. 
as you can see. So the technique is the same, just the intent and the ending is not the same. How can we get into the psyche in this? I have no idea. So it's very difficult to get that out. They, they did not write, wrote about um, a psychological dimension behind it. There is one single author trying to touch on this, but it's no generalization. Did I answer to the question? Yes, thank you very much. Back there in the back. That was good. As far back as we're going. I guess I'm not quite that bad. Um, first, I made comments about the relationship between the weapon and the armor, and uh, the the immersion properties of how the armor protects you against different kinds of unarmed attacks, as well as the blade weapon. Of course, anything like this, we need to be careful about post-hoc error proctor-hoc fallacies. It makes sense now, but it might not have been built in at the time. One of the things that seems to come out of this, I'm wondering if you, what you thought about this, is a second order angle that emerges from this is that, of course, you may be generating insights into the, the evolution of the arms and the arms themselves. They don't develop entirely in lockstep, it tends to be they can be slightly out of phase as, as weapons develop or defenses develop. Um, what kind of insights do you find yourself generating in terms of not merely techniques, but the actual instruments themselves for this kind of so you mean, um, if I the other will change and evolve over time, the swords will change and evolve, and there'll be an interaction between those designs. And your armor represents a particular phase in development of so coming to either a Leopard 1 or a Leopard 2, as opposed to a, 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 a M47 Chappie. Yeah. So the question is whether I can see these developments into my source material. Does it help to deepen your understanding of yeah. the development of these systems? What is interesting is that I rely on, I'm, I'm an historian of text, circulation of knowledge. So I rely on interdisciplinary work. Interdisciplinary work is not pretending to understand another discipline and trying to apply it, but to meet other scholars, to invite them to engage with your work. I did that with specialists with armor, and to try also to bring their knowledge about exactly why is this like at this point and why is this at this point, and can you relate a specific uh, kind of armor, armor with the context of application? And you can. And it helped me a lot to choose which design I was willing to, uh, to, uh, to experience and why. Now, interestingly enough, there are phases of attempt or development. You can see tryouts, things that do not last for more than 10 years, so it was abandoned. Some of them were really good. Some of them were not retained for several reasons. Same with swords. So yes, the, the fight books, so these martial, written martial traditions, they are also helping the scholar for uh, arms and armor development because in this you have subtleties. Difficult for you to read if you are not accustomed to wear armor, for example. But if you do, one, oh, yes. Why is this armor finished like this? Why is this piece shorter than the other one? Oh yes, that is because this. I will just give an example to illustrate. On the wrestling section, so can a knight go to the toilet? Of course he can. And uh, here, these knots, they are attaching or connecting the, the shoes to, the, to uh, the upper garment. And it's the same on the back. In every fighting depiction, you see that the last knot is untied to allow really deep movement on the back without uh, scratching the shoes on the back. And this is not seen elsewhere. Not that I know. That's an example. Not for working with for clothing. Um, yeah, thank you, that was, that was fantastic. Um, I, my question is, um, 
it seems, well, you tell me, is, is the issue um, discussed in the literature around reconstruction of medieval knowledge or fighting skills? Does it deal with the fact or, or the possibility that there is not one, um, there is not a truth, there is not one single truth? Like, there isn't a, a medieval fighting style, there isn't medieval swordsmanship, there's just people with certain pieces of equipment and, and, and principles they're experimenting with. It's like, it seems to me a lot of these, a lot of the debates are structured by an implicit belief that there is, there is, there is one, mm -hmm. that there is one to be found, whereas, you know, everyone's like on a journey through life, there's the journey through technology, there's a journey through, through the decrepitude of age, you know, there's not one way of fighting with, with swords ever, is there? Is there am I just really naive here? Mm -hmm. something? Thank you very much for, to raise this point, I didn't touch it upon the, the talk. But um, uh, historians of um, embodied knowledge in the early modern Europe about like jumping, dancing, and moving, they all ask the question, is the written material we have representative of the actual practice? How do you address this distance? Well, uh, you have to. And that's done with prosopographical work, trying to identify the intended audience and so on. And sometimes it's very difficult because our um, corpus is just at the beginning of the investigation. So all the sound uh, scientific work and the specification of those sources has not been done yet. So we are just left with a lot of material and a lot of people try to jump into and to make this real and to pursue their goal to find this is how it was done. And um, for the, uh, the, the first case study I was thinking, it's about uh, the, the end goal here is try to make a, a technical glossary to help the reader who will, have the, will work with the source to better understand how it could have been or what it could have been. It didn't imply that this is what he implies. In your opinion, is that a possibility that your research can contribute to future research on robotic design? Yes. And robot. I think I think there's a great contribution of your research towards that, especially uh, robot science. Is a big, you know, a move, movement actually. That is a movement that they can go into investigate. I will uh, add two things to uh, to your question. Um, a famous suit of armor, made in 1520, realized by Henry VIII, King of England, was investigated by the engineers of the NASA. For developing the spacesuit, so the first first spacesuit was developed after medieval, late medieval armor. So yes, definitely, it's not my work; it's just the object also. also. And so I think there must be some value in your research, especially with very specific and detailed uh, scientific data collected. Yeah, if, if we can finance my next project, I would love to. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm just wondering about the weird stuff you've done. I mean, you know, water, beaches, mud, um, surfing, sex. What? How far out have you gone? The pig is running, right? So I'll just give one example. When I first got this, I said I have to wear this two hours a day just to get my body accustomed to it. And I cannot really 
uh, put it on myself. So I need some help. So you can imagine how my wife hates me <laughs> to do two hours a day vacuum cleaner, dishwashing, running and helping and living in this thing just to get my body accustomed to. Now I won't answer the question about sex. I will, uh, I will answer the question about water. We, uh, I don't know if you know, uh, maybe you have heard or seen that on YouTube, but we have an ongoing project. There is a guy, an experimenter, that uh, works with Edo period manual on how to swim in Japanese armor. And he did try out an experiment in pool. It's incredible. I cannot swim with this, but we have manuals, uh, these models, <coughs> where you can see different attempts to cross waters. And one of them is thumping something goes. And I would love, just for the media's sake of this, invite the Japanese experimenter to actually swim when I'm doing this. This would be awesome. <laughs> if you were to have contact with someone who does swimming in our Japan, Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, my question is about the modern application of what you've uh, learned so far. Now, obviously, you can't wear the armor out and about, and you definitely can't carry that sword without being arrested. But have you stumbled across or come across uh, any way of what you've learned about old fighting techniques that can be applied in modern situations? In terms of movement and parrying and... Um, one of my uh, friends uh, also dealing with interpreting his uh, armor fighting, one of my sparring partners actually, is in contact with some people that are training police forces. And they find similarities into some concepts about how to actually take the guy down because he's wearing heavier equi equipment. So yes, there are similarities. Now, since I'm not familiar with that particular kind of police training and I don't wear uh, police force armor, I can't really answer to your question. But uh, at the end of the month of August, I will make an obstacle run with a firefighter and a lone soldier just to, uh, to show that they carry the same load. It's agree the same, the striking image and how you can move with that body. What's, what do you think of the psychological effects of you know, wearing this all the time? So if you were at a you know, night or warrior during this period and you had to wear it for long periods in the battlefield, often with the helmet on, mm -hmm. I mean, how would that affect you mentally, do you think? Uh, if I go to warfare for a long campaign, I won't take this helmet. Mm -hmm. This one is too heavy. Although I don't feel the weight on my neck because something interesting here, you see my waistline? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, it's not, it's not because I'm in the fleet. It's because I wear a garment that restricts my waistline physically. When I'm not this, I, waste, I, I uh, lose six centimeters of waistline. So I'm like in a garment and that allows me to move more easily and that would allow this to sit. So physically, this is between this bone and this bone. So if I'm thrown, if someone takes by my feet and do this, the armor won't go up and press to my chin. So this was not really to answer to the question, but just to illustrate how important uh, your, your body must be in. And some of it is constrained, some of it is not. And now I have a different look in medieval uh, depiction of nudes or people with nudity where you can see that they are actually like this. I think their body are actually like uh, 18th century ballet dancers. It's actually meant or transformed by this. Now, for the psychological effect by wearing a closed helmet for a long time, with the breathing problem. And yes, the first thing you want to do is open the thing to, uh, to, to breathe more. 
but in a lot of depictions of uh, um, armor fits for battlefields, the helmet is not close. You close it when you go to the fight. Does that answer your question, or I can't really... I mean, what I'm thinking of is if you wear the armor for a long period of time, it sort of, it might get claustrophobic even if you don't wear a helmet, because it does sort of... Yeah, because uh, as I said, you, you don't, it's really easy to open, even when I'm armored here. So this button I press, and this is open. And built-in design allows this not to go before. Completely open here, half open, so it's really quick to close and to open again. So I think, yes, this is a problem, but it is solved by the material design. And it's like uh, wearing a motorized helm. So inside there is garments you need to protect. <laughs> and for the heavy jousting, for example, they, where they're completely closed, and sometimes closed with a tool, they also say that they soak the inside garment with uh, lotions of vinegar and egg to um, lower the sound of the strike and to compress the air. But arthritis, it's not really... Well, vinegar and egg, it's okay. When you wear vinegar and egg for a long time, you hope that you'll put more vinegar than egg. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have one time for a last question here. Any more questions? Yes. All right. Oh, okay, front, then. Experiment in it. You know, as a young scholar, how did that happen? 
short answer again. I sat with my supervisor for the PhD. I said, I want to work on five books, historical European martial arts. He said, well, I'm a specialist of 13th century predication, religious studies. So I will not help you. I will put my name there, okay, but I will not help you. Find yourself a way to make sure that you will attract attention. <laughs> 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 